Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselle Damari-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. Gia Tolentino, welcome to Culture Call. I wrote a book about how the commoditized self is corrosive, and the better I put that, the more I commodify my own self. What do you mean by that? If I've done my job right, when I walk around, I can just be a balloon. Like, I want to be a balloon on a string. We're all going to do whatever we want anyway. Yeah, it's definitely a mess. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big, ugly mess. Wait, you told me something about myself that I didn't know. I have to write it down. What's the relationship between control and sort of abandonment? Well, I can trust sensation in a way that I don't necessarily trust my logical brain. Wow. (laughs) Knowing what's bad about something has never stopped me from forming my life and myself around it. Gia Tolentino is a cultural critic. Um, She writes about a lot of things, but most of them intersect with internet culture. She's been a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine since 2016. Over the past few years, she's written about all sorts of things that uh, perplex me. One being the rise in popularity of vaping. Uh, Another, the rise in popularity of athleisure, which is sort of like overpriced workout clothing. That's also a lifestyle. (laughs) Um, She writes a lot about gender and feminism. Uh, One piece that stands out from last September was called Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump and the things men do for other men. So things like that. Yeah, as a journalist, Gia really made her name online. She was an editor at the sites Jezebel and before that, The Hairpin. And needless to say, she's really popular on Twitter. She's very funny there and a good person to follow. So she just published a collection of new essays called Trick Mirror, which has been extremely popular. It was recently number two on the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers list. Uh, And in them, she explores nine themes that have been on her mind. One essay that really stood out to me was the first one. It was about basically the Internet and the five problems of the Internet, from how it pushes us to overvalue our opinions to how it destroys our sense of scale. Yeah, that essay is amazing. Um, Another one that I loved was about another kind of contemporary obsession, which is the idea of self-optimization. Yeah, like from the chopped salad industry to the $40 workout class industry um, to also our obsession with life hacks. And these essays draw on her own experiences, really. They're kind of unusual experiences, I would say. For example, she grew up in a Christian megachurch in Texas, and she writes about that as a community. Uh, She also appeared on one season of a reality TV show when she was a teenager. So they're kind of everyday experiences, but also notable ones, I think. Yeah, and we should say that we're not the only podcast to have had Gia on recently. It seems like everybody wants her really sharp analysis on what are very strange times. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, uh, by the time she came into the studio, I'd read various interviews with her, listened to various podcasts. I had read about her skincare regime. I had read 
the kind of food diary of everything she ate in a single week. And I'd even read an interview with her dog, Luna. Really? Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of Gia content out there for someone who wants to consume it. Yeah. Um, sometimes interviewing people who are doing lots of press does make us question really whether we're jumping on a PR bandwagon by also interviewing them. But in this case, we thought it would be really interesting to ask Gia what it's like to be at the centre of it all because she's someone who writes about all of this stuff so well. She's constantly investigating selfhood and how selfhood has become a kind of commodity, really, in the age of social media, how we perform for each other all the time online. I also have been thinking about like why this book has touched a nerve. And I think it's come out at the exact time that we feel like we're kind of at maximum capacity. Like we're on this treadmill and it's speeding up exponentially with the internet and mm. we don't really know how to get off of it and we don't really know how it's affecting us. And um, we all have anxiety and she really helps us unpack it. Yeah, it's like a guidebook to kind of what is happening right now. It's a little bit like a guidebook without the how to fix it part. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's actually not at all like a guidebook. Sorry, Gia. <laughs> but it does feel like we're all in this experiment and no one's driving. Mm. Like, I've been thinking about vaping and how it feels like the perfect analogy that people are vaping these jewels everywhere. They're like sucking on these what look like digital USB sticks and... <laughs> My parents are asking me what they are, and they're an innovation, right? And we all know that they have to be better than cigarettes. But no one actually knows their long-term effects because the technology is still in its infancy. I don't know. It feels like we don't know what the Internet is doing to us, and we don't know what this technology is totally doing to us. And Gia's book, and Gia, when you talk to her, she does a very excellent job of putting words to what's going on and explaining why. I mean, she's definitely helped me understand this, like, very weird and overwhelming time. Yes. She's shifting culture by kind of skewering culture in a way. You know, she's kind of holding a mirror up, almost. Right, for sure. You know, and it's it's kind of ugly. Like, it's difficult to look at, but um, really resonates. Yeah, it's definitely a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, ugly mess. It's a big, ugly mess. But it's like, we got to see it, you mm, know? Mm. It feels better to see it than not to. Yeah. Before we get into the interview with Gia, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been in touch with us since the last episode. Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, and I want to name a few. One was Francesca, who wrote us from Argentina. Um, she asked us to do something about how art and activism are converging which I think is a really great theme. Uh, another is a listener named Todd from California. He's interested in the rise of video game streaming and in-game socializing. And, you know, honestly, I'm tempted to do a whole episode where a teenager just explains Fortnite to us because I feel like this is a cultural thing that we <laughs> really need to know. Yeah, we need some help on this. <laughs> um, also... Grace Charlton wrote us about astrology, and I loved this one. Um, it was about whether, obviously, it was sort of in response to my diatribe from last time about the rise in astrology in our culture, and she suggested that maybe it's a symptom of the loss of religion, and maybe it's a symptom of a newfound obsession that we have with the self um, that sort of comes from social media, and that maybe we use astrology as a vehicle for self-analysis. So anyway, we'll be talking about that in a future episode. I think we're going to have one about astrology. So please continue to send in your thoughts. Grizz, I'm going to make you test your co-star compatibility with me. <laughs> we're going to find out once and for all whether we're good co-hosts. It's going to be great. So yeah, keep writing in. Keep letting us know your thoughts on astrology, please. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
Um, yes, and we had a lovely email from Chibondu Onuzo um, in London who wrote to us with some really lovely words about George the Poet. And she also mentioned that she's performing an autobiographical show which is about growing up in Lagos in Nigeria and in London. And it's this week at the South Bank Centre in London as part of the Africa Utopia Festival. So that sounds really cool. Um, and thanks for letting us know. Yeah. And, you know, please keep reaching out. You can, as always, tweet us at FT Culture Call or you can email us at culturecall at FT.com. That goes straight to Grizz and me. OK, let's get on with the show. Here's Gia. Gia Tolentino, welcome to Culture Call. Thank you for having me on. Can you explain to someone who hasn't read the essay collection Mm -hmm. what it's about and what questions it's answering? I think it's more asking questions and answering them. The short answer is it's about nine things that I was obsessed enough with to write too many words on. The circumstances in my life and contemporary culture that seem to me to be especially conducive to self-deception self-delusion, things that sort of prescribe a really narrow idea of the self and what the self should be that I think obscure what the self actually is. One example is the kind of paradigm of optimization, right? This idea that everything should just always be getting more efficient and beautiful forever and ever and ever. So it's the idea that you can optimize yourself. You can optimize yourself, right? And I think that that idea maps in a really specific way onto women's lives and women's bodies in particular. And I think for me, you know, as soon as I was, let's say, eight years old and picked up my first teen magazine, I understood that to be a woman meant that my job was to improve myself always. And that's a really strong idea. And it's a certain idea of the self. And it's, uh, I think it's a self delusion. Like it's not, it's not necessarily true. We were not necessarily put on this earth to be getting more beautiful until we die. In a lot of ways, we explicitly weren't. (laughs) Another example and a more autobiographical one, I went to school within this giant, giant mega church in Texas for 12 years. And they're the sort of that idea of what a person should be and what was good and what was bad. I also went on a reality TV show when I was 16, and I talk a lot in the book about how just structures of self-surveillance, first with that reality show and then now with social platforms, I think those are conducive to kind of a a narrow, consistent idea of the self that isn't necessarily true to how messy we are. Your reality TV show experience is really interesting because that was kind of just before the dawn of social media. Yeah. So, um, you know, now people go on reality TV shows with the explicit intention of becoming an Instagram influencer. Yeah. Um, And this was before all of that. I mean, you're you're best known, I think, probably for writing about the Internet. Mm. Yeah. Do you kind of look back on it differently now because of the internet? Well, yeah. I mean, this was 2004 when I went on it, and we didn't understand that all of contemporary culture would reorient itself around this idea that selfhood could be bought and resold and marketed and broadcast forever, right? We hadn't yet accepted that as the structure of contemporary life, and this was just the beginning of it. And I never watched the show because I did this just early enough that none of it survived. Like, it's not on YouTube. You literally cannot find a clip of it anywhere. There used to be old sort of like MySpace era fan sites about it. They've all been shut down. And so I'd never seen it. And 
I never wanted to see it. And I'm I'm normally so curious and so curious to self-investigate things about my own life that I find shady. And I finally watched it because I was like, okay, you're writing a book about self-delusion. You probably should watch <laughs> yourself going on a, Your reality on a TV reality TV yeah. show. <laughs> and I realized one of the things that I had been wanting to hold at arm's length was the realization just how naturally I had taken to this extremely artificial mechanism of self-broadcasting. And how normal I found it to think of myself as a character, to think of my day as something that would be caught on camera all the time. And I think I had been not wanting to make the very obvious connection that my willingness and my ease with those systems are completely related to the way I relate to the internet, you know, and the fact that the internet has been central to my career that Twitter, this mechanism of self-broadcasting, has been central to my career. And this kind of obviously corrosive paradigm has been good for me and I've taken to it and I've liked it. So the reasons that you flourished on this reality TV show and then in your career in kind of women's magazines online, yeah. Jezebel I'm thinking of in particular, yeah. but also on Twitter, that these are the same reasons for flourishing in both these areas. Yeah, and I think that this is... And this is an issue that I think recurs in the book. And one of the things that I was trying to write the book to understand for myself was that a real central condition of being alive today is if you're lucky, you get to benefit from really bad systems. You know, if you're lucky, you end up on the good side of what these systems do, these systems that crush other people, mm. you know, and are kind of objectively like I do think there is no way for platforms whose business model requires retaining our attention, which essentially means aggravating us. I don't think there's any way for that financial incentive to be to operate ethically. And yet I make my living within the attention economy and I've benefited from it. And me not wanting to recognize how deeply that pattern had been built in from, you know, when I was a teenager was one of mm. the reason that I was scared to watch the show. And I watched it and I was like, oh, you're the same. Like, that's that's <laughs> like that's that's bad. <laughs> I want to ask you, I mean, you say in the book that in a way, women that we've had that we had a kind of perverse head start when it came to the yeah. Internet because we were already schooled in the importance of right. kind of personal branding, of self-presentation before people were even talking about things like personal brands. Right. Can you explain that? Yeah. So. People have been writing about this in different ways for a long time, but there's the John Berger way of, ways of seeing this idea that women have this double vision. You know, you you see yourself the way you see yourself, and you're also conscious of how other people see you. Yeah, so he says if, if a man walks across the room, he's just a man walking across the room, whereas if a woman does it, she sees herself as the men see her walking, walking across, across the room. room. Yeah. And it's true, don't you think? Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think I learned very early on, you know, reading those teen magazines, and there's not an equivalent for men. There's not an idea of which personality are you, what kind of girl are you, what, you know, how are you coming off to other people, like here's how you dress to look this certain way and... It's just this constant analysis of these structures of self-presentation. And you, I think you know from an early age that personal appeal is somewhat paramount. You know, you're going to have to make yourself appealing to other people to even be able to make it through school without being punished and make it through college and make it through the certainly early in the workforce. So you are aware of how to be appealing, how to couch your anger in humor, how to be just confident enough to do something, but just self-deprecating enough to not threaten anybody. This paradigm that women have inhabited 
for centuries is now the paradigm that the internet systematizes, where the internet sort of restructures the world as a constant performance because you have to actively communicate on the internet. You can't just be, you can't just walk across a room. You have to communicate, I'm walking across the room or else nobody... So there's a kind of self-consciousness built into that. There, it has to be, right? Because mm. you can't just be on the internet, right? No one will see you. And you so, have to be shouting or saying something. Yeah, or something. you have to be saying, I'm walking across the room. You have to post a photo of yourself walking across the room. <laughs> it's this sort of nearly parallel universe in mm. which you have to constantly communicate to exist. And... I think that this kind of uneasy condition that women are very used to is now built into the structure of contemporary life. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I kind of described it as like a perverse head start. And it yeah. it, it feels like that in the way yeah. that you describe it because... Right, and it's like a head start on we, what? Right? Yeah, a head start well, exactly. on a bad system. On something yeah. that's, not, that's not great. Yeah. Um, does that explain the prevalence of misogynistic trolling? Does that, mm. Is there a connection there? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I think it's it's sort of similar to, you know, women run the influencer economy. It's like porn modeling and Instagram influencing are the three <laughs> careers in which women out earn men. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's deeply depressing. But, you know, an economy built around the appeal of the self is a deeply attractive one. And also it's so easy to hate. And I think it's interesting with trolls. I think that the Internet being so troll-laden is also related to the fact that feminism has become really ascendant over the last 10 years of the internet. So it's um, kind of a backlash. Yeah, I think that's part of it, right? Like, I think that, you know, in, in the States, like, white nationalism rose to the forefront as white nationalists co-opted pickup artists and, and men's rights activists. The kind of simmering misogyny that was all over the internet has really become the bedrock for a lot of other movements. And I think it's it is like a reflexive backlash to feminism, maybe more. But I also think what trolls are pushing against, you know, they're all anonymous, right? They are mm. all chaotic. They are pushing against a paradigm that is not great. They are kind of saying that there should be dark corners of the Internet. This idea that we all have to be constantly on stage performing something appealing like they're pushing against something that I also think is bad. They're just doing it in the absolute worst way possible. <laughs> <laughs> and this this idea of kind of there being no offstage of constantly performing the self, I'm interested in how you're kind of reflecting on that now, having yeah. thought about the book, written the book, and now, you know, you're spending a lot of your time talking about the book. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this is, this is it's an unusual situation because it's your first book and it's getting a lot more attention than most yeah. people's first books yeah. might get. So it's your first time doing this kind of level of publicity. Yeah, right. It's like I wrote a book about how the commoditized self is corrosive. And the better I put that, the more I commodify my own self. Right? Mm. Like you write an anti-capitalist book and the better you write it, the better you are making it a marketable object within the market, right? Yeah, there's a tension there. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> and, and it's irrevocable. And I think that's part of the reason that like, I think about it constantly, but I'm also like, as with many contradictions in my life, this one will not be undone. I'm not going to not write the book about this, and I'm also not going to not talk about it, because it's also a pleasure. I mean, I have been really conscious that this is not the reception that most people get with their first books. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm shocked by it, but I... I mostly have been approaching these conversations as like, this is an opportunity to talk about it with smart people and test these ideas against what they think. I think I'm, I don't know how long I can keep this up, but how I've thought about self-promotion is the way I think about Twitter, like how I act on Twitter, which is just don't prepare, don't think about it, don't get too self-conscious about it, just act as you would. So there's a kind of seamlessness between life and life on Twitter. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, a while ago, I tried to 
tell myself that the only way to make Twitter bearable would be to interact with it from a standpoint of pleasure first. And to also, I mean, I think that it should be kind of a very obvious golden rule of Twitter. It's like you see so many people that are just nightmares on Twitter, just super annoying, you know, really petty. And, and then in real life, they're perfectly lovely. And I find that wild. It's like we can't let these systems incentivize us to be worse than in real life. It incentivizes a kind of interaction that I find really monstrous. Like it, it is built to stretch our selfhood into a thing that cares a lot about our own opinions and like loves when we can have somebody to fight with, you know, and, and that's actually not how most people interact in real life. And I think if these structures are going to be intertwined with our our lives and our, our professional lives and our communities and our, you know, our personal relationships, one of the only ways to make them bearable is just to try to be a full self on them, which means I think for most of us, understanding that we're not consistent understanding that we don't always look good. Like, I generally just try to be not annoying, you know? It's <laughs> <To laughs> like, kind of base level yeah, of just be, but human I don't, interaction. But the program, I mean, it programmatically asks you to be pretty annoying. You know, it asks you to, like, constantly trying to attract attention to your most minute thoughts and, like, start fights and, like, try to dunk on people. And it's actually, like, in real life, we mostly just want to chill and like have a good time I think you know <laughs> and Twitter really distorts that and so anyway this is a long answer to say insofar as any interaction is somewhat of a performance in that even getting in a cab I'm trying to perform the persona of like a nice quiet customer and when I'm with a friend I'm trying to be a good friend I'm trying to act like a good friend and also be one and I think with doing publicity I'm just trying to if I'm acting a part, it's like that of someone that's here to have a conversation with mm. someone smart, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. This is the thing. And I find it really interesting interviewing journalists who have written books and are then being interviewed for the first time. I know, and I want to ask all the questions back yeah, to, to you. you can't. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, in these essays, you diagnose all these problems really precisely and, and sharply. Are you trying to sort of prescribe or suggest solutions as well? Or is that not so much what you're doing? There's this thing in writing, and I think in life, and probably just in our cognitive tendencies where, like, we can write a whole book about something uncomfortable, but it has to come with 10 pages of here are the solutions. And that's not how I feel in my brain. And I often feel that when we have these conversations about things in real life, when we are talking about the things that are truly systemically troubling, we don't wrap it up with solutions. You know, the way that our brains feel and the way that we feel when we talk about it with our friends and our colleagues, it's like, yeah, you know, we lay it all out and then we sit there and we're just like, yeah. And I wanted the book to reflect that. But also, like, I can't tell anyone else how much to cleave to and resist and undermine a system. It's like, we're all going to do whatever we want anyway. And I think the idea that I would prescribe what people should do on an individual level and the idea that that even matters, I think we're living in a world where individual action is almost meaningless. Um, and that's also something that I was trying to remind myself that whatever I do, whatever I choose to do, it matters as much as my life matters, which is very, very little. I mean, that's quite a scary, overwhelming But actually, thought. I find it freeing. I find mm. it really freeing. Like, it's like with climate change. It's like, it doesn't matter if I forget to throw this banana peel in my compost. Like, it doesn't matter. I want to, but it doesn't matter. Like, what matters is massive systemic reorganizations. And so, yeah, this book is about the self in a lot of ways. And it's sort of, there aren't, there aren't many self-level solutions that really are important to me. So what you're saying is, it's not that you don't believe in solutions or that you don't believe in change, but that... 
at this moment particularly it's systemic change that needs to happen. You putting your banana in the compost or not doing that isn't actually going to change. Yeah, anything. and I think that I think this is also me pushing against if the internet is set up to make the self feel so central and so magnified. I think one of the things that I'm also drawn to and trying to access in whatever way I can is the reminder that the internet makes it seem that the whole world has something to do with you, right? That you're personally involved in all this stuff because it incentivizes you to personally respond in a way that reflects correctly upon you. In reality, most of the world has nothing to do with us, you know, and mm. we're just these tiny little people, you know, in our tiny little sphere. And I think I, I'm trying to reclaim that understanding from the internet, which wants to distort the self to make it, you know, the size of the world. I mean, that's, that's a positive thing, you know, putting, putting our own lives into perspective. It's about... Um, you know, seeing the world as it is rather than how social media wants us to see it. But it could also be read as a as a kind of essentially quite pessimistic outlook. What if kind of understanding why we do something, why we want something, what if that doesn't make us not want to do the thing? Yeah, and it certainly hasn't Does made that me. Well, I also tried to write a lot of these critiques through the standpoint of why are they pleasurable? Like, why are these corrosive systems really, really pleasurable? And why are they attractive... I think this is another thing about being alive right now is you can understand everything about how something is bad and you will continue to engage with it half from desire and half from necessity, right? Like, for example, ride sharing services. They underpay their drivers. They don't provide benefits. I use Lyft in New York all the time. And knowing what's bad about something has never stopped me from forming my life and my selfhood around it. And I think that... Uh, it's kind of just like a plain basic fact, and it doesn't scare me. That's what interests me. I'm much more interested in thinking about, or I feel like it's a necessary component to think about these things from a standpoint of desire as well. Does knowledge change your behavior? Well, I think so. This is the thing that I think that maybe the book is really about, right? You know, I started writing this book after the election, the 2016 election, where it was like, okay, the use of knowledge is no longer as clear as I thought it was. And... The question of whether something is good or bad doesn't matter the way I thought it did. And, you know, knowledge often doesn't change our behavior on, all, you know, all up and down the scale. Like I I'm going to keep taking vacations. You know, I'm going to keep getting on planes and going, you know, to places to see the world before climate change ruins it and in the process ruining the world. You know, I'm going to keep doing it. And I think and I wanted to write a book that had that tension the fact that knowledge often doesn't. And I think that's such a dominant, overarching condition of our time, knowledge not leading to what we thought it did. And and Trump isn't, you know, he's not actually explicitly mentioned very much in this book. And yeah, yet it feels like a book that's written in, in the era of Trump and with the knowledge of all that that means. And you say um, in the introduction, I think it is, that that was a wake-up call in terms of ideas of certainty and truth yeah. and kind of all these things things that we think that we do as journalists. Right. You know, it really called into question all of that stuff for you. Yeah. And I had been kind of chafing against certainty and certainly in my own writing for a while. But there is also something about the Trump era that's like you think you got it. And then like rugs just keep getting pulled out from under your feet. You know, like I thought that the pussy tape was as low as I could sink in terms of understanding, you know, and then like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings happened and you know, like I've been walking around the edges of, of this question of what is the use of certainty and like what role does it play in my understanding of the world? Um, and then the election happened and it just 
threw me into this mire that I'm still in. And I think that's okay. I want to ask you about this um, kind of issue of, of certainty and uncertainty. And you say often in the book that, you know, I'm never sure of anything mm. or you feel ambivalent or unsure about all of the issues that you write about, I think. Um, and then you say that when you sit down to write, it's a calm person who appears mm-hmm. on paper. And that, you know, it struck me as as this image almost of conjuring a different self yeah. on the page to the self who's the actual writer. Yeah. Can you write that calm person into being? Is that what happens through writing? Yeah, yeah. I think it's not even conjuring, right? I mean, I think the internet, it wants to pin you into this consistent, this very consistent thing. And in, in actuality, we are not just inconsistent, but we're actively shaped by whatever systems are shaping us, including the internet, right? Like Mm. it's molding us in its image, basically. And I think it's important to remember that, that we are very moldable and perpetually that way, I think. And in my head, I always feel confused. And when I finish writing about something, I feel that, I feel that I'm clearer. And that is a self that that I have continually tried to bring into being through writing. And not even to conjure it to actually become, become that mm. self, mm. to have that, like the the me and so, myself in context of having a bunch of ideas that I haven't tried to work through is a different self than the me after I've tried to work through them. And I've always known that I had the ability to convince myself of things <laughs> and convince myself of certain ideas about yeah. the world and myself that were often enough self-serving in some way. And at the same time that you know, this ability is tied up with the thing that I love the most and that brings me the most meaning, which is writing. Like these things are always going to be inextricable. But I do think it's just something I've always, it's something that I always want to keep my eye on, my ability to write a certain self into being. And, and, you know, on a larger sense, that's like the writer self that's clear. But I think there's also like probably a desire to write myself into kind of like a virtuous self or, you know, an appealing self or whatever, right? Mm. And I, I, I think that if the thing that I have been trying to cultivate through writing, this ability to make something clear, it's essential and it's necessary and I, I need it and I need to live this way. And it's also the quickest way for me to, you know, bullshit myself. <laughs> I got I to gotta be aware of it, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, this is the thing. You know, it makes writing about uncertainty quite difficult. If yeah. When you sit down to write, what comes off the page sounds quite certain. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, writing the book was even like, how do I work this out in writing? Is there a way to be productively uncertain in a way that's also legible? Because mm. you have to make even that, un- even writing about uncertainty, you have to be quite clear. Well, you it know? feels like there's there's a kind of, I mean, I was going to say tension, but it's not really a tension. But there's a sense in the essays that you're thinking these problems through and kind of oh, turning yeah. them over. But at the same time, your prose style is very authoritative. It's crisp. It's clear. Yeah. And so the voice is not uncertain, even if the subject matter. Yeah, if you're that's uncertain about the subject Yeah, matter. totally. Yeah, maybe that's how I worked through it. I'd never, I'd never thought about it that way. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. <laughs> well, this must be the funny thing about being interviewed: is people sort of tell you oh my about God. yourself and your yeah. Work. And also, I think one of the reasons I write so much is that I'm not actually. I think I am a thoughtful person, but in my day to day texture of living, I'm not really that thoughtful on an everyday basis. I just write things down and understand that I'll want to make sense of them later. When you say you're not very thoughtful, do you mean like you're in the moment? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm actually like pathologically in the moment. It might be like, (laughs) you know, I'm like a career stoner. That might be why, you know, I don't think about things before they happen. I mostly try not to think about things after they happen. I mostly just walk around, you know, like a balloon on a string. Like I really don't feel that thoughtful 
And it's only afterwards and mostly through writing that I can really make sense of anything. It's really interesting because you write about the idea of ecstasy, both in terms of the drug mm. and of the kind of spiritual, emotional dimension yeah. of the ecstatic experience. Yeah. On the other hand, you also write about the idea of control. At one point you say... I value control almost as a matter of etiquette, mm -hmm. as an aesthetic. And the writing itself is very controlled, and yet it seems that there's this kind of yearning for the ecstatic. And you see that in your writing style yeah. as well. It becomes... The, the, the essay on ecstasy, I think, is is one of the most brilliant ones in the book and that it, it has this quite lyrical quality to yeah. it. I mean, what's the relationship between control and sort of abandonment? My way of living in the world is organized around extreme, like contradictory extremes. Like it's so miraculous to even be walking around and it's like kind of unfathomable. And at the same time, I'm full of despair all the time, <laughs> you know, and both of those things always mm. coexist. And, mm. I, and so many things in the book are about things that I'm really attracted to and really repulsed by. And those things will always exist at the same time. And I think that the control and abandonment thing, this is another thing that my friend, that a friend, she was interviewing me and she asked me and we were kind of drunk and she was like, what does sanity mean to you? And it just slipped out. I said unconsciousness. And I was like, oh, no, you know, like <laughs> this is like this is like this would be like a six years into therapy kind of thing. And she just dragged it out of me. But why do you think you said that? Because I think it's true. Right. I think that it's me trying to work at both ends is me trying to work against both things, right? Like I feel I have a strong desire in me for control. I have a strong desire in me for total kind of self-erasure. And I think there's it's similar with the, you know, the aggrandizement and the diminishment of the self. I am attracted to both ends at the same time. But it's also I can trust unmediated experience. I can trust sensation in a way that I don't necessarily trust my logical brain. Mm. It's unmediated. And there's so little in life that's unmediated. That pure, mindless, like sensory, like to be stunned like that by experience, it's one of the only things that I feel that I can really trust in a way. Well, that kind of drug-induced experience is very sensory and very yeah. physical. And yeah, and, and, and overwhelmingly like I, so. And I write about it as, you know, being a, being a religious kid, just this thing that would quiet myself. You know, it's like the it's it's me trying to work against all the natural tendencies I have to wanting to understand and analyze. Like, I think part of me just wants wants that that total mm. mindless wants unconsciousness, you know? Yeah, it was interesting because on the one hand, you're saying you sometimes feel like you're a balloon just kind of floating through the air and just yeah. experiences happening to yeah. you. And on the other, there's this mind that needs to be quieted. Yeah. Well, I think that if I've done my job right, I will have thought about things so hard when I'm sitting down and writing that when I walk around, I can just be a balloon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I think that's actually and I did kind of get it from this book. Like what I wanted was to really, really go there with all of the things that disquieted me and that I couldn't look at correctly unless I wrote them down in such a way that I could be freer in the actual texture of everyday living. So do you feel kind of unburdened? Yeah, having kind written of. It? Because that's how I always am with anything I write. It's like I write about something when I can't stop thinking about it, when I can't stop like compiling mm. weird notes about it, when I can feel something kind of hovering in the back of my head. And then when I'm done, it's like you did your best to think about it. There you go. <laughs> and what are the things that are hovering now? now? Yes. I mean, honestly, like it's dumb stuff. Like I'm like, Cats the musical. Like, <laughs> well, like a few a few weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about the wife guy and and your piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On on the wife guy came up. Yeah, so is that is that kind of thing. I am often thinking about 
like, what is the future of these social networks that have been built to be beyond our control, right, that have been built to a scale where, like, if they are successful, they will be impossible to moderate? Because I think it used to feel kind of niche, and it does still feel kind of niche to me to be writing about the internet all the time and kind of embarrassing. But I think increasingly, so many stories are internet stories, right? Like every kind of mass political story, every gun violence story in America now is, a, is an internet story. Yeah, like, unfortunately, I'm thinking about the the internet. <laughs> again. <laughs> again. Yeah. But it also feels like just thinking about the world, I guess, right? Mm. Is your job at the New Yorker partly to explain the internet to people to who are older, older than people? You? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I have thought, okay, what is a good use of being at the New Yorker? Like, I find myself, I wrote about, like, vaping. I wrote about Juul. And I was like, I do want to make these things legible to the parents of the <laughs> Jeweling teenagers. <laughs> But I also um, I think about this as more like I don't want anyone writing about this but me. Like with these topics, like when they get floated, I'm like, yeah, I have to write about it. It can't be anyone older than me. It's got to so have be a me. sense of like what your subject is. Yeah. And I kind of feel one of the things that has always driven me nuts is I think like let's say college students, I think they're written about really poorly. I think that people have underestimated the degree to which millennials and Gen Z understand that the world is in structural crisis. <laughs> You know, and mm. I think that college activists get painted in this super weird light. And I feel that young people deserve someone writing from a place of sympathy and understanding. I want those assignments because mm. I think it's also kind of hard to write about young people stuff in a way that both captures the sort of chaotic energy, but also is legible. Yeah. Like, I find it an interesting challenge. Well, Gia, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was... Yeah. Thank you. That was Wait, fun. you told me something about myself that I didn't know. Um, I have to write it down. <laughs> so, Grizz, what part of this conversation with Gia stood out to you the most? Was it the thing you told her that she didn't know? <laughs> no, I then, I then couldn't remember what it was that I'd said that she didn't know and went through lots of things and it wasn't any of them. Um <laughs> It's funny, I think something that I was thinking of is how she has this quite rare combination of being sharply analytical and also at the same time kind of happy-go-lucky. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this is something you can fake and I also don't think it's something that you can cultivate, really. I think it's something to do with her temperament. You think that she's more chilled than the average writer? Yeah, I mean, that's quite possibly true because I think lots of writers are analytical people and they turn to writing in order to kind of work things out which I think she does as well but something that she said which I don't think I've heard other writers say is that she sort of does her working out in her writing and then when she's walking around and not writing she's feeling fairly kind of in the moment and not overly sort of neurotic uh, you know she's basically the opposite of a neurotic writer yeah there's something endearing about the idea of walking around like a balloon on a string mm. Yeah. Like, I want to be a balloon on a string. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one thing that stood out to me in Gia's book is this deep dive that she does into the collective rituals of chopped salad and <laughs> waiting in line at a place called Sweet Green, which is sort of a salad chain in New York and around mm. the U.S. Um, can I read just like a very short part of that? Yeah. Okay. It's about figuring out how to sort of get better at being a woman or being a person and consistently optimizing and how satisfaction is sort of always just out of reach. She says, but the worse things get, the more a person is compelled to optimize. 
I think about this every time I do something that feels particularly efficient and self-interested, like going to a bar class or eating lunch at a fast casual chopped salad chain like Sweetgreen, which feels less like a place to eat and more like a refueling station. I'm a repulsively fast eater in most situations. My boyfriend once told me that I chew like someone's about to take my food away. And at Sweetgreen, I eat even faster because slowing down for even a second can make the machinery give you the creeps. <laughs> Sweetgreen is a marvel of optimization. A line of 40 people, a texting, shuffling, eyes down snake can be processed in 10 minutes as customer after customer orders a kale Caesar salad with chicken without even looking at the other darker skinned, hairnet wearing line of people who are busy adding chicken to kale Caesar salads as if it were their purpose in life to do so and their customer's purpose in life to send emails for 16 hours a day with a brief break to snort down a bowl of nutrients that ward off the unhealthfulness of urban professional living. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's just sort of... Yeah, and I just saw, I just saw myself in that line mm. and looking down that line and noticing, which I don't know if everybody is. I imagine everybody is that everyone is doing the same thing. They're all looking at their phones. They're all letting this sort of optimization process happen. They're all scarfing all of this food in order to nourish them for an unhealthy lifestyle of being addicted to your work and your phone and the internet and, and then running to a bar class in order to provide health to yourself and optimize yourself in, again, an unhealthy world. And it just, anyway, made my brain explode. Yeah, I mean, it's stressful even to listen to a description of it. <laughs> right. But it reminds me, from your interview, your question, does knowledge change your behavior? Mm. And should it? And I'm curious what you think about that. I think the thing that I that I really like about Gia's book is that, you know, it doesn't really offer solutions or conclusions. And I find in journalism and in and in nonfiction generally, having a false happy ending kind of slotted onto something is dishonest and kind of unsatisfactory in some way. Yeah. However, I'm not sure that I totally agree with her. You know, I, I think some knowledge can actually change us. I think it could. I think knowledge could be a solution in a sense. I was thinking about um, environmentalism because she used that as an example, and um, people have been talking about this thing, flygscam, which is flight shame, the Swedish word for flight shame. Oh, yeah. Um, or like the kind of shame that flying induces. Right. Um, and it's about Greta Thunberg. And apparently in Sweden, there's been a decrease in air travel and an increase in train travel. And that seems to me an example where like people feel bad about something. They know it's bad for the environment. They change their behavior. And that actually has like a noticeable effect. Right. So the question is like, where is it necessary to change your behavior and where is it helpful just to know, right? Like, so mm. maybe, okay, now I can analyze my role in the system while waiting yeah. in line at Sweetgreen, but I'm still going to go to Sweetgreen mm. because I like their salads and because they do make me feel like I got some nutrients. <laughs> yeah, and it's whether you want to stop doing something as well, isn't it? Right. I mean, it brings me to the other question of, you know, she said we're living in an age where individual action is almost meaningless. Do you agree with that? <sighs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I, ca I can't. It gives me, it, I don't know if I'm a blind optimist, mm. <laughs> but I think I'm a little too much of an optimist to believe that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's a certain strain of kind of nihilism in the essays, actually. Mm. Like that idea that, um, 
I mean, she doesn't say this, but it's kind of leading to an idea that's like nothing matters, so who cares? Mm-hmm. But obviously she cares deeply and that's like one of the really interesting tensions that's in those essays. What do you do if you care about something but there's nothing you can do to really change it? Like yeah. you don't have the power and like you just have to kind of sit there and just be with that problem. Just know it. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I'd recommend that people read the book because it just sort of makes you think about all of this without necessarily having to sort of come to a neat conclusion about it. So that's nearly it for this week. Um, Next week, we have the comedian Sarah Pascoe on the show. Uh, And before we next speak, I will be binge watching her comedy online ahead of your chat with her. Um, Grizz, uh, what do you have coming up before the next show? I'm really looking forward to reading Margaret Atwood's new book, The Testaments. Right. It's the very long-awaited sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. This sounds incredibly geeky. I don't usually pre-order books, but this one I was pretty excited about. (laughs) And the buzz is because The Handmaid's Tale, I mean, there's been the Hulu series and all that, but it was published quite a long time ago. So the sequel is news. Yeah, I mean, almost 35 years, I think. Uh, So, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is older than us, actually, which is amazing. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not like it's ever been a book that people haven't been reading. But I think the publication of this sequel feels kind of more like a cultural event than most book publications, not only because it's Margaret Atwood, but because The Handmaid's Tale and now The Testaments really kind of resonates now. And that's why the TV series was so, um, you know, was such a hit. There's this sense that we're living in a kind of dystopian world. I don't think that's exaggerating. You know, we're seeing the rolling back of abortion rights, this sense that authoritarian regimes are kind of bringing up in various places around the world. Yeah, and even those costumes of the handmaids have been popping up in rallies and protests around the world. I mean, it's quite iconic now. Yeah. So as an editor in Life and Arts, can you tell us a little about what you guys have planned? Yeah, there's going to be a big piece about the book that's a review of the book, but also looking at its kind of wider resonance and why it's kind of so popular now, I guess, why there's been this big moment building around the publication of the book. Um, And then we're also doing, I think, a lunch with the FT with Margaret Atwood, which I can't wait to read because I think she's so interesting. Great. I can't wait to read the book. I'm sure it will be depressing. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode and we'd love to chat to you on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call and you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. If you like what you hear, you can also share the podcast with your friends. That'd be great. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners can discover our show. We'll be back in two weeks' time. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatum. Do you want me to, like, tell you when it's going to be something and then snap? Or is that, like, too much? I think that's a nice ending. Cool.